You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Okay, we're going to get into some um, heady waters today. We're actually going to begin at verse 1 of the letter to the Hebrews. And, um, and we're going to get into some heady waters because you remember, looking back at, um, at verse and chapter 5, um, verse 11, the author tells us, about this we have much to say and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. Now what was it, do you remember, that he was getting to rev up to and then completely shifted course? It's a person's name, good name for a dog, Melchizedek. When he was talking about Melchizedek, and what does he say? He said, we're going to hold off on that. And then he starts talking about um, spiritual maturity. And he does say, we're going to get back to it. Well, we're back to it in chapter 7. So the thing that the author says, this is kind of complicated, so I don't want to talk about it right now, we finally have arrived at. And so it's a little complicated, but I think that all of y'all, most of y'all, and you see a few people who won't be able to handle this intellectually, um, you'll be able to track with me, okay? Let's pray. Our God and Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, that uh, our Lord Jesus Christ um, has come into the world uh, and now reigns as our great high priest. And we pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts that we might understand what it is you're saying to us, Lord, for if we cannot understand it, it's because we are dull of hearing, not because what you're saying is complicated. And so, Lord, uncomplicate our ears and our hearts and our minds that we might see you as you are. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, I'm going to read the first ten verses. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest to the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. I'm just, I've never actually thought about that verse very much, but you wouldn't want to put that on a child's birthday card. Returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham, apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem. That is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man who does not have his descent from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises." It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, so we're leading up to it. So here's a little word. Typology, sometimes called typology. T-Y-P-O-L-O-G-Y. Does anyone know what that is when we talk about it in terms of Bible? 
Ken Trawick. A type of Christ. So if we want to get even more specific, it's something, typically in the Old Testament, that is a type of something in the New. The type is in the Old Testament, typically. And the antitype is in the New. Let's give an example of this. If you have your handy Bibles, you might want to look at this. Number, well, actually, don't hold off, hold off on this one. Numbers 21... Numbers 21, verse 6. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. What is the type? That's the antitype. But the type is, is, the, is the serpent on the pole, right? And what ha- Now, give me a little bit of a Reader's Digest. What happened? in what I just read. They're encamped in what attacks them? Serpents. And they ask Moses, pray for us. So Moses prays and God directs him to do what? Bronze serpent on a pole. And how is it that you get healed if you're bitten by a snake? You look to it, right? You look to it. Okay. So... In Moses' day, there in Numbers 21, they may not have thought anything of it other than the deliverance of their salvation. And yet, if you look at John chapter 3, verse 4, 14, hear what Jesus says. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now do you see that? The type is the serpent on the pole that looks forward to what? The cross of Christ, right? Looks for the... Have some boldness, folks. You've got the answer in your heads and your hearts. So the serpent on the pole is the type, and the cross is the antitype. And so in the same way, that's what's happening here in Hebrews. So looking back to Melchizedek as a type, but looking forward to who? The Lord Jesus Christ, right. So that's what we're dealing with here, which means that if we want to understand what he's trying to say about Jesus, we have to understand what he's saying about Melchizedek. Now, just as a shameless promotion, uh, our own Doug Webster Uh, has um, done a book on Hebrews, which is really great and really accessible. If you're looking for a Hebrew study in your own private devotional time or if you have a small group, it's a good one. Uh, But uh, he's very good uh, about this and, and talks about where we can find Melchizedek in the Bible. Now, this is not a trick question, but where can we find Melchizedek in the Bible? 
How about Hebrews chapter 5, 6, and 7? Right, we're there. Psalm 110 and Genesis 14. That's, that's where we, we, we find them. Now, I just want to stop and, and talk about how remarkable this is. Now, in one instance, actually, Psalm 110 has already been quoted. You'll, you'll see it if you're on page 1003. If you're following along, turn a page back. You are my son today, I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So that's the author of Hebrews quoting the psalmist. And the psalmist is looking back to what? Genesis 14. Now this is just a little bit of an aside about the internal testimony of God's word. Until you started taking this class, just be honest, how many of you actually had heard of, not just heard of Melchizedek, but knew anything about him? A couple of you? Right. It's an obscure character in the Bible, isn't it? And Hebrews 7 is one of those chapters that we've talked about where you start reading it and you're going to say, and moving on. Right? You're not going to stop. You're like, this is way too complicated, and I'll just, I'm going to run with it. Melchizedek, blah, 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 whatever. That's fine. But Melchizedek is not a prominent person in the Bible, and he gets mentioned in three different, although he gets mentioned in three different books of the Bible. But here's what's amazing about this, is that you have the story in Genesis that is about looking forward, right? It's about looking forward to what David prophesies in Psalm 110, which looks forward to what the author of Hebrews says in 5, 6, and 7. Right? David is looking back at Melchizedek, but also looking forward to the Lord Jesus Christ. And Hebrews is realizing the significance of Melchizedek. This says... I mean, what did Moses and David and the author of Hebrews really know about Melchizedek? They knew something of him. But the only way that this works is if the internal author of the Bible is the same person, namely God. Because it's not as if David's sitting around and thinking, hey, Melchizedek. It's fun to say Melchizedek. Um, it's, but in fact, God lays it upon his heart. And even the strange interaction that we've read about uh, in Hebrews 7 that is a digest form of Genesis 14 uh, is, uh, is a strange thing, what is happening in Genesis. And so there is, a, there is no, when people say, well, ever, this group of people got together and they just included in the Bible what they wanted to include, this would take some effort to get this kind of stuff out where you can get the author of Genesis, Psalm 110, and Hebrews working together. Because Genesis is about a thousand years before you get to Psalm 110, and then it's about a thousand more years until you get to Hebrews 5, 6, and 7. That's some pretty impressive coordination if it's a collaboration. So anyway, but that's, that's, a, that's a footnote. So the author is in fact the same, and it's an internal proof of God's authorship of uh, the Bible. Okay, well, let's start. If you want to know what, what the author of Hebrews is trying to say, you can take the first part of verse 1 in chapter 7 and the latter part of verse 3. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High, moving down to verse 3, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues as a priest forever. 
That's his thesis. That's what he's trying to lay out. Now the first thing we learn is that this Melchizedek is the king of Salem. But he's also the king of righteousness. Now, there are lots of ideas about who Melchizedek is in Genesis 14. Some people will go so far as to say that it's the pre-incarnate Christ. But verse 3 doesn't allow us that. So this is where we're going to remember how we wrestled last week. Let's get ready to wrestle. Because verse 3 tells us what? But resembling the Son of God... Now, don't you think that the author of Hebrews, if it was the Son of God, would have said, he is the Son of God? But what? He resembles the Son of God. Now, here's the funny thing, though, is that what the author of Hebrews is saying is that it's not that Jesus is like Melchizedek, but Melchizedek is like who? Right. Melchizedek resembles Jesus. He's the type. Jesus is the antitype. And he runs with it because he starts talking about he's the king of Salem and he's the king of righteousness. And he even does some translation for us. What's the word Salem mean in Hebrew? Shalom, anybody? Peace. He's the son, the king of peace and of righteousness. Now, when you start to learn about this kind of stuff, your eyes begin to be open and you have a greater appreciation to hymns especially that you've sung your entire life and wondered, what does that mean? Where do we hear, and you've all sung it a billion times, righteousness and peace. Hark the herald angels sing, right? Right, that's, that's, that's the, so Charles Wesley is actually taking Hebrews 7 and applying it uh, to his sermon that the Lord Jesus Christ is the king of righteousness as well as the king of peace. And so he's not the pre-incarnate Christ, but he's like unto it. Okay, now you say that, Andrew, but wait a minute, what does the author of Hebrews say in verse 3? Someone read that for us. Okay, so if he's not the pre-incarnate Christ, and the author of Hebrews says, and he's echoing Genesis, he doesn't have a mother or a father, and he is neither, has neither a beginning or an end, then who in the world is this guy? Now here's where the Hebrews, the Jewish Christians, have a leg up where we don't. Because we look at that and just read it at face value and don't understand what the author of Hebrews is saying. Because the priesthood in the Old Testament is dominated by the Levitical priesthood. Right? What's that? They have to be a tri- from the tribe of Levi, descended the, the Aaronic priesthood. Right? So if you are a priest, or if you're going to be a priest, you have to actually prove your genealogy. And they were so serious about this that if you turn to page, you don't have to turn to page 390, but Ezra chapter 2, man, you can see what I was up to this week. Ezra chapter 2, verse 62. This has been a lot of fun, um, but it's also been a giant headache. Ezra chapter 2, verse 62. Now, um, 
bottom line, a bunch of guys showed up, also the sons of the priest, the sons of names that no one can ever pronounce, but also are great um, dogs' names. Get to verse 62. These sought their registration among those enrolled in the genealogies, but they were not found there, so they were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. So these guys showed up and they said, we're descended from Levi. We're to be priests. And what are they asked? Show us your birth certificate. Show us your papers. They weren't able to produce them. And so they said, back of the line. Right? You're, you're not able to function as, as a priest. They, they kept track of this stuff uh, in, in tedious, uh, in detailed, or understatements for it. And so simply claiming that you're part of the Levitical priesthood was not enough. You had to prove it. You know, they didn't have ancestry DNA back then. You, know, you couldn't just do that. You, you, you had to have your papers. And the other thing about, so the one, you had to be able to trace your genealogy, genealogy back uh, through, through to Levi and the Aaronic priesthood. Two, the, the priesthood actually didn't begin for these men until they turned 25. And they would work as sort of apprentice associate types, and they really wouldn't take on a big role of leading corporate ministration in the temple until they turned 30, and then they had mandatory retirement at 50. So it was a 25-year gig. Your whole life led up to it at 25, and then after 50, you just, you retired. You, you weren't doing it anymore. So, if in order to be a Levitical priest, you had to show your, your descent from Levi, and it was also for a time certain, it means that no one in the Levitical priesthood could provide for a type of Jesus. Because their ministry would have a beginning and an end, wouldn't it? And so the author of Hebrews isn't saying that Melchizedek didn't have a mom or dad, but his priesthood came through what? His person from God. And in the same way, Jesus is not descended from the Levitical line, but his priesthood has no beginning and no end and is not dependent on any line of descent, genealogically speaking. So do you see that it's not about the lineage, it's about the person of Jesus Christ. It's about their personal worth and their dignity. And so the author of Hebrews is establishing the superiority of Melchizedek's priesthood over even Aaron's priesthood. And you see why that is now. Why Melchizedek is the greater priest. Because of his descent, which is not based on whose is, you know, it's not Charleston, what's your mother's maiden name, or Mobile for that matter, uh, nor is it, uh, nor is it, hey, you can't start the gig till you're 25 and retire at 50, but you have it because God has given it to you and it can never be taken away. And in fact, the Bible goes out of its way to never talk about Melchizedek's birth nor his death. So his priesthood doesn't end. And then, um, and, and so, and of course, uh, as I said earlier, the mom and the dad. So it's a superior priesthood. 
But if that's not enough, the author of Hebrews says this. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. This is the tithe, right? How did the priest in the Old Testament survive? Through the tithes. They were also entitled to you know, certain sacrificial things if the meat floated to the top and uh, certain quarters of an animal. They were entitled to things, but basically they were dependent upon the people to give them tithes. And, and it also showed that the people were saying that you hold a very special place and you're an intermediator between us and God. You're the one going before the altar with the sacrifices. And so when Abraham gives Melchizedek a tenth, what does that mean? Abraham is recognizing the priestly authority of Melchizedek. And not just that Abraham gives him the money, but it's Abraham giving him the tithe. And not just that, but who blesses who in Genesis 14, and the author of Hebrews tells us here, who blesses who when it comes to it? The greater blesses the lesser, and we're seeing Melchizedek get blessed. Melchizedek is blessing Abraham. This is shocking. Because who is Abraham? He's the big one, right? Father Abraham. This is the big one. And yet it's Melchizedek blessing Abraham as the inferior. And Jesus talks about this in John chapter 8. Well, I'll just paraphrase it for you. Remember, they're talking about it. And Jesus says, before Abraham, I am. And they, and this is the whole conversation about we've never been in bondage to anybody. We have Abraham as our father. And what did Jesus say? Don't think that just because you have Abraham as uh, your father. Um, well, I'll just read it. Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died, and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? And Jesus answered, I glorify myself. My glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me of whom you say he is our God but you have not known him I know him if I were to say that I do not know him I would be a liar like you but I do not know him and I keep his word your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day he caught a glimpse of it in Melchizedek didn't he he saw it and was glad and so it's not enough to simply say that you have Abraham as your father that Abraham is the inferior when it comes to Melchizedek. But remember, too, that the people that the author of Hebrews is addressing are Jewish believers. And in spite of all of this stuff, actually, before we get there, let's talk about the tithes. The author of Hebrews even goes further to say, one might even say that Levi himself, who receives the tithes, paid tithes through Abraham. 
for he was still in the loins of his ancestor. That's a really great line. You know, I often tell my children, when you were in my loins, uh, and uh, before you were, uh, loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. And so the author of Hebrews is going, so it wasn't just Abraham, but Levi, who wasn't even around at this point, he was through Abraham paying, it was the priest paying Melchizedek. Now why does all of this matter? Because these are Jewish believers that are really struggling. And like most of us that struggle with our faith, you know, most of us didn't come from one organized religion to the next. Some of you may have. You may have grown up in a, and, uh, in a household that celebrated a different faith, but now you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Some of you may have grown up in paganism. Uh, some of you may have grown up in just a sort of worldliness. Regardless of what you grew up in, that is almost always what you will revert back to when you backslide. And so for the Hebrews, their automatic reversion point is to go back to what they were doing as Jews. And what were they doing as Jews? Where were they putting their trust? In the priestly ministry of the temple. That, that's how one, and we're going to get, he eventually gets to why that's, that doesn't work. Uh, but they had turned away, and now they were really struggling, and they were wanting to turn back to Jewish ceremonialism. They were being pressured to look back, pressured to look back to the altar, to sacrifice, to incense, to bells. And the problem was in Christianity, they didn't have any of that. I know you'll say, well, some of us have that now. But in the, in the early church, that stuff didn't exist. They didn't have any of that. And remember, in the early world, what were Christians accused of being? Atheists. Why were they accused of being atheists? Oh, you're a Christian. You're a Christian. Where do you go to meet your God? Well, we don't, we don't have a temple. You don't have a temple. Well, then, where do your priests work? We, we don't have priests. We have one advocate with the Father. He's our great high priest. No pri well, then who does sacrifices? Well, there was a once and for all sacrifice on a hill outside of Jerusalem, you know, 50 years ago that, uh, that, that paid the price for our sins. No temple, no priest, no sacrifice. Y'all are atheists. Right? This was the, not just the Greek world, but this was also the Jewish world. And so when you're told your religion is totally backwards, you, you need the temple, you need the priests, you need the sacrifice, uh, it's very difficult not to revert back to all of that. And that's the question that really uh, is being asked. Now, I'm going to read to you uh, from uh, next to the Bible, the most popular piece of literature in the English language. It's been printed second only to the Bible. Can anyone tell me what it is? Pilgrim's Progress. Be honest, how many of you have actually read it, even just the first book? Oh, y'all are missing out. It, it speaks. It's the movie. The movie's coming out, David says, uh, for all of you Americans. Uh, Lauren and I, I think I've told this before, but just inside, Lauren and I took a friend of ours uh, who grew up Hindu, but she was Hindu like the Olive Garden is Italian, and, and was just kind of. 
and we took her to see the Passion of the Christ. And of course, the end of it is the empty tomb, but he's just been crucified. And the, the theater is completely silent. We're walking out, not saying anything. And uh, Lauren asks Pooja, um, well, what did you think? And she says, I really liked it, but I thought the book was better. <laughs> anyway, uh, so I'm sure the movie's great, David, but the book is much better. So just to give you background, because nobody reads it anymore, um, you have this man named Christian who has been pointed by, he lives in the city of destruction. He thinks it's, because it is, it's all going to be destroyed. He leaves his family, his wife and children, in order to find a way to relieve him of the burden that he's carrying on his back and to go on to the celestial city. And this man named Evangelists tells him there's a gate over there and you must go through it. So Christian makes his way to the gate, and it's this incredible journey, and as he goes along, he meets all kinds of people, some very wonderful people like Faithful, but then other people, and you say this kind of stuff, but you don't know where you got it from, Mr. Worldly Wise Man, he's one of the characters, uh, but as he's going along, he runs across two men, formalist and hypocrisy. So as he was troubled thereabout, he espied two men come tumbling over the wall and on the left hand of the narrow way, and they made up a pace to him. The name of the one was formalist, and the name of the other hypocrisy. So as I said, they drew up to him, who thus entered with them into discourse. Christian asked, gentlemen, whence came you, and whither you go? Formalist and hypocrisy said, We were born in the land of vainglory and are going for praise to Mount Zion. Christian asked, Why came you not in at the gate, which standeth at the beginning of the way? Know you not that it is written that he that cometh not in by the door, but climbeth up some other way, the same as a thief and a robber? Formalist and hypocrisy said, That they go to... to, to that they that to go to the gate for entrance was, by all their countrymen, counted too far about, and that therefore their usual way was to make a shortcut of it and to climb over the wall as they had done. Christian asked, But will it not be counted as trespass against the Lord of the city, whether we are bound thus to violate his revealed will? Formalist and hypocrisy told him that as for that, he needn't be troubled his head about it, for what they did, they had custom for and could produce, if need were, testimony that would witness it for more than a thousand years. But, said Christian, will your practice stand at a trial at law? Formalist and hypocrisy told him that custom it being of so long a standing as above a thousand years would doubtless now be admitted as a thing legal by any impartial judge. And besides, said they, if we get into the way, what matter does it make which way we get in? If we are in, we are in. Thou art but in the way, who, as we perceive, came in at the gate. And we are also in the way that came tumbling over the wall. Wherein now is thy condition better than ours? Now I might need to translate that. So formalists and hypocrisy have not come through the gate that has been specified by the leader of the celestial city and pointed to by evangelists, but they came over the wall. And when Christian says, I don't think that that's okay. What is their defense? We've got thousands of years of tradition that say that this is perfectly fine. They've created a false way, a robber's way, to try to get on the way to the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And that's actually the question that the author of Hebrews is asking. How do we draw near to God? What are the means by which we draw near to God? And what the Hebrews are struggling with, and all of us struggle with, and Mr. Formalism and Mr. Hypocrisy embrace, is externals. Well, I'm going to draw near to God by what I do. Whether that be through the temple priest and sacrifice, whether it's the keeping of the law, or whether in our day and age we decide we're going to turn over a new leaf and I'm going to start going to church more. that's all well and good but if we think that just our actions are that which is going to draw us near to God we're mistaken how is it the pilgrim's progress and the author of Hebrews tell us how do we draw near to God we draw near to God through his son Jesus Christ him and him alone and I get it it's not a sensational Uh, It's not as cooperative, maybe, as we would like it to be, and yet that's the way that God has designated for us to come to know him through his son, Jesus Christ. And so that's why the author of Hebrews is saying, don't get sidetracked by this, because actually all these things that you think are good that you're believing in are false ways to get to God. They're ineffectual. And not just that, your focus should not be on the type It shouldn't be on the bronze serpent. Does anyone know what happened to the pole with the bronze serpent on it? It was destroyed. And why was it destroyed? Because it became an idol. The people started looking at the bronze serpent instead of to God. They kind of kept it around as a token. So they had it destroyed. But having your focus on the type, whether that be the Levitical priesthood, whether that be even Melchizedek, rather than that which they point to, who is the Lord Jesus Christ. Clear as mud? Okay, so that's what the author of Hebrews is trying to say in chapter 7. Basically is this, and you said, man, we could have gotten out of here a lot earlier if you had just said, focus on Jesus. He's the great high priest. He is the greater one. He's the author and perfecter and the pioneer of our faith. Don't get sidetracked. Don't try to climb over walls. Don't go back, but move forward. We're going to heaven, and we want you to go with us. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your word, and we pray that we would indeed turn to you and live, that we would not try to find false ways to get to you, but that we would come to you through your son, Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life, in whose name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us for one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.